And dear God, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would just open up our hearts to it and speak to us tonight, and just have your way with us and be glorified, and it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right, so Wednesday nights, we're doing an overview of the Through the Bible in a Reading, Through the Bible in a Year reading. Last week, uh, last week's reading took us from 1 Kings 5 to 1 Kings 20. It was moving a little bit slow. Next week's reading is going to take us from 1 Kings 21 to 2 Kings 18. It's going to pick up um, some of the way this, I like this program, but honestly, every once in a while, the way it sorts out which chapters we read on which day, I don't really get, but it works and we're all doing it together. So anyways, this week's reading was 1 Kings 5 through 1 Kings 20. And really, the historical overview, we'll do kind of an overview uh, fairly quick, and then we'll jump into maybe a little more direct application. Um, but the overview is basically we're picking up right as Solomon's become king. And in 1 Kings chapter 3, Solomon, uh, he asks the Lord for wisdom. He says, you've made me king, but I need wisdom. And the Lord says, great, I'll give you wisdom. And while I'm at it, I'll give you riches. I'm going to give you all kinds of stuff. I'm going to bless you like you can't imagine. And so then Solomon becomes king. And Solomon has that incredible opportunity from the Lord, and he decides to waste it. Uh, Solomon, it is really, there's a couple tragedies in the Bible, right? Samson is a tragedy who had just really full, totally untapped potential, and he just wasted it all. And Solomon is another one of these guys who we get to read his autobiography in Ecclesiastes, and more or less his summary statement is, I wasted my life. Right? I took every opportunity and every gift, I took them all to absolute excess, and it was all a waste. And it's a really, really sad commentary. Um, but as part of that, as part of Solomon's life, though, we can still glean so many lessons. And then because of Solomon's disobedience and Solomon's rebellion against the Lord, the Lord takes the kingdom away from Solomon's family. And we see this balance. The Lord says, you know, I made a promise to David. I'm going to give him a kingdom that it's going to last. But on the flip side, I can't reward your disobedience. So there's 12 types, tribes of Israel. Ten of them uh, rebel against Solomon's son, Rehoboam. And now we have a split and in the kingdoms. And now it becomes the kingdoms. And so you have what's known as the northern kingdom, or what gets called Israel. And that's the ten northern tribes. You have down south what's known as Judah, which is really Judah and Benjamin, and uh, all the devout Jews who immigrated. They all left. You know, people will, you'll, people will talk about the ten lost tribes, because the ten tribes never have a godly king after the split, and they eventually get carried away by Assyria, and Assyria tries to assimilate them into their culture, and really culturally they are kind of lost. But if you read in uh, in First Kings, when Jeroboam becomes king and starts setting up paganism, all the devout Jews move south. And so the ten lost tribes are not lost. The Lord knows exactly who they are and where they are. And there are still 12 tribes of Israel. And we may not have the technology to break down who's who and who's where right now. Um, but the Lord is very aware of that. And the Re book of Revelation tells us that eventually there's going to be 12 tribes of Israel. We're going to see that we'll be in heaven by the time that's fully revealed. But, um, but there's going to be the 12 tribes of Israel still. And then it goes on, and basically Kings gives us a narrative of kings of Judah, kings of Israel, side by side. Uh, kings and Chronicles, just parenthetically, 
Chronicles just gives us the kings of Judah. And so Chronicles is a little easier to follow. That's what we got first and second kings, then we got first and second Chronicles. Chronicles is a little bit easier to follow. Kings is a little bit of jumping back and forth. And, you know, one time we're talking about a king of Israel, and we're, then we're talking about a king of Judah. And it doesn't help that a couple times there's a guy with the same name ruling in both spots. But that's really the overview uh, where we find ourselves at the end of the reading for this week is up in the northern kingdom, the kingdom of Israel, there's a king named Ahab. Ahab is another one of these guys who really honestly had some potential. Um, you, we see there's a couple moments where Ahab has uh, some genuine repentance. He's willing to actually listen to the Lord. But Ahab is married to a wicked woman. Um, really the definition of a wicked woman. And that's Jezebel. And so Ahab, uh, the Bible says, sold himself to do evil in the sight of the Lord. And so Ahab's another one of these guys. But in the midst of that, you know, the Lord is always into warning people. The Lord doesn't like to let people, the Lord doesn't let people go off a cliff just because. Uh, if people want to go off a cliff, it's with, it's their decision, right? And so the Lord sends a prophet, Elijah, to Ahab. And Elijah and Ahab have this back and forth for years, right? Where, you know, deep down, you got to think Ahab knows there's something to what Elijah's saying because he listens to Elijah when it's politically beneficial, and then he ignores them when it's hard. And so... Ahab's aware of this, but Elijah comes and says, you know, there's going to be this big drought. There is. And then Elijah says, let's have a showdown between my God and your God, and we'll see who's tough. We'll see who's strongest. And the Lord shows up and totally demonstrates his power. And it's this really amazing story. Um, but that's the historical overview, okay? So next week, as we're getting into it, we'll just keep going. We're going to see more of the kings. We're going to see uh, really a moral slide in both countries, and we're going to see the Lord deal with sin, because the Lord always deals with sin, and there's always consequences to sin. And so uh, when a nation or a leader or a group of people refuse to walk and surrender to the Lord, sooner or later, there will be consequences. And so there are consequences for the nation of Israel, the northern kingdom. There's consequences for the nation of Judah. And so... There's all that picture. There's, there's that big picture dynamic, right? There's this whole moving scheme. And there's all these parts and players and nations and civil war and division. And there's all these outside kingdoms who are coming in. And we're trying to make treaties to get them to be on our side versus their side. And there's all these things going on. But in the midst of that, there's also a lot of individualness, right? And really, that's the story of the Bible throughout the Old Testament and the New Testament is that God's always at work in the heart of the individual, Right? And, and the Bible gives us these big picture moments and context, but then it always zeroes in to say, okay, now here's the person. Right? So here's, what, here's what's going on in the world, but here's what God's doing right here. Because right? a lot of times we like to see the world in big pictures. Right? Everything is bad or everything is good. Right? Everything is black or white. And, and morally speaking, that's true. But in terms of what's happening culturally, oftentimes... The Lord is working, the Lord works at a personal level. And so we can't assume what the Lord is or isn't doing based on what we think the big picture is or isn't doing. Because the Lord is seeing the whole picture, right? The big details and the little details. Um, but tonight, really where I want to focus is, as um, I was praying about it, is Solomon's life primarily. Um, 
and really a couple, couple key highlights. So Solomon becomes king. He finishes up some business of his dad's, i.e. he kills off the people his dad didn't get killed off in time before he died. And then he's king. He's, he's fairly established. The kingdom's uh, at peace. Solomon has a lot of wealth right off the bat because David had collected a lot of wealth to build the temple. And so Solomon has this, uh, he's got a heart to build a temple. He's got a little of a commission from his dad to build the temple. So Solomon starts building this temple and it's going to be fantastic. It's going to be fabulous. It's going to be marvelous. It's going to be all these, you know, it's going to be covered with gold and expensive wood and stone. And it's, it's really uh, an immaculate building. But in chapter six, Starting in verse 11, Solomon's starting construction on the temple at this point. He's got his labor crews, you know, he's got them broken down so that you quarry for this amount of time or else you're on the, you know, you're on the carving team or you're on the inlay team. And he's got this whole system moving. And in chapter 6, verse 11, it says, Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon, saying, Concerning this house which you are building... If you will walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I will carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will not forsake my people, Israel. So if you read this, okay, we all read this in the reading. Did you notice that God gives an incomplete thought? God doesn't finish his thought to Solomon. God says, now concerning this house, which you are building, if you'll walk in my statutes and execute my ordinances and keep all my commandments by walking in them, then I'll carry out my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. God says, now about this temple, if you obey me and follow my word and keep my commandments, then I'll abide with you, right? There's this idea that the Lord is, Solomon has got this huge project going on, right? And it was, it was, don't get me wrong, it was an amazing building, right? And it's a, and I'm sure it took up a ton of brain space and a ton of, you know, Solomon's life. And the Lord comes to him and says, hey, now about this temple. And Solomon's saying, all right, all right, yes. Uh, like, thank you. That, that's what's coming, right? The Lord says, now about this temple, make sure you keep obeying me, right? And, and, and you see, there's this idea that the Lord is going to, and we'll see it repeated here in just a bit. The Lord is basically telling Solomon, hey, the temple's great. I'm cool with that. But don't lose focus, right? Don't lose sight in the big picture of what I'm doing on a small scale level right? Temple's great, Solomon. But right now I want to know, are you going to walk in my statutes? Right? So, so the Lord, so Solomon's working at a big picture level. Solomon's got a lot of things going on and that's not bad in and of itself, right? There are times when we have to do things at a, at a larger scale and that's not bad. Okay, there are times for, you know, mass evangelism and, and giant outreaches and crusades, but there's also time for one-on-one. And, and so the Lord's just saying, hey, Solomon, hey, right here, don't lose sight of the fact that yeah, you're building a temple and that's great, but don't forget, follow my word. And then, so that's, so that's Solomon's, like, okay, that's before the temple's done. And then the temple gets done. In chapter 8, Solomon, they have a whole dedication ceremony. And Solomon gets to give the ovation. And so, the oration, not the ovation. Solomon gets to talk. Um, so, so they have the sacrifice. Then Solomon gets up to give this big giant prayer. And it says, uh, so he's kind of talking about, he's giving the backdrop of, you know, my dad wanted to build this, but the Lord said he couldn't do it, but one of his sons could. And now 
I'm the king, and so I did this. And starting in verse 20, we'll, we'll be jumping around in chapter 8 a little bit. But um, in verse 20 of chapter 8, he says, Now the Lord has fulfilled his word which he spoke, for I have risen in place of my father David, and sit on the throne of Israel as the Lord promised, and have built the house for the name of the Lord, the God of Israel. And there I have set a place for the ark, in which is the covenant of the Lord, which he made with our fathers when he brought them from the land of Egypt. So Solomon then stands up and he starts praying and he, you know, he thanks the Lord for his promises, thanks the Lord for bringing them out of Egypt and he's recalling a little bit of their history. But, um, but it's a really interesting thing here where Solomon starts then praying out thoughts where he's saying, okay, God, now if basically this temple is going to be our anchor point spiritually as a nation, right? And so God, he says in <clears throat> verse 31, if a man sins against his neighbor and he has to take an oath and he comes and takes an oath before your altar in this house, then here in heaven and act and judge your servants and condemn the wicked and, and reward the righteous. And when your people Israel are defeated before an enemy because they've sinned against you, if they turn again and confess your name and pray to you in this house, then here in heaven and forgive their sin and bring them back to the land. And verse 35, when the heavens are shut up and there's no rain because they've sinned against you and they pray toward this place and confess your name and turn from their sin when you afflict them, then hear in heaven and forgive the sin of your servants and of your people Israel. Teach them the good way in which they should walk and send rain on your land. Verse 37, if there's famine in the land, if there's pestilence, and then he goes on through all these, you know, if there's all these problems, whatever prayer or supplication, verse 38, is made by any man or by all your people Israel, each knowing the affliction of his own heart and spreading his hands towards his house, then here in heaven your dwelling place and forgive and act and render to each according to all his ways, whose heart you know. For you alone know the hearts of all the sons of men. When your people go out to battle, verse 40, 44, against their enemy, by whatever way you shall send them, and they pray to the Lord toward the city which you've chosen and the house which I have built for your name, then here in heaven their prayer and their supplication and maintain their cause. When they sin against you, verse 46, for there is no man who does not sin, and you're angry with them and deliver them to an enemy, so that they take them away captive to the land of the enemy, far off or near. If they take thought in the land where they've been taken captive and repent and make supplication to you, and he goes on and basically says, you know, if they repent, then forgive them. And it's really, you know, you read it through and you think, wow, that's a pretty great prayer. There's a lot of, you know, God, if there's sin, then help there to be repentance and then forgiveness. And you're like, yeah, that sounds so good, right? But if you stop and look at it, there's a really interesting thing. And that's if you contrast how Solomon uses the word I versus how Solomon uses the word they. Okay? When Solomon's praying here, when he talks about I, what's he say? He says, uh, verse 21, I've set a place for the ark. Verse uh, 43, that they may know that this house which I have built is called by your name. Verse 44, the house which I have built for your name. Verse 48, the house which I have built for your name. So it's, it's God's house, but we are supposed to make sure we don't forget who built it, right? It's God's house with Solomon's name on the door. Right? And so Solomon's happy to pray to God and say, God, you know, we want to we glorify your name in this temple that I built. Right? Look at this beautiful thing that's all for your glory that I was in charge of putting together. Right? Solomon is happy to reference himself in his prayer, but he's referencing his abilities. 
And he's happy to reference sin in his prayer, but he's referencing other people's sin, right? Solomon prays for their sin, right? When they sin, when they rebel against you, when there's a famine in the land and they need to pray, when they need to confess. And it's, it's a subtle little detail, but I think, it's, I think it's super critical for us because it's the challenge that each one of us faces, and that is to try and put this divide of spirituality between ourselves and other people, right? And, you know, like when Jesus told the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector who were praying in the temple, he says, the Pharisee was praying to himself. That's how Jesus phrased it, right? When he says, oh God, I thank you that I'm so great and I fast and tithe and I'm not like this tax collector. And the tax collector wouldn't even look up to heaven. He said, God, just have mercy on me, right? Solomon right here is offering a very eloquent prayer. And we know from the scripture, right? Solomon was incredibly wise. He was incredibly knowledgeable. Solomon was probably one of the most intellectually gifted people in all of history. All right. He was one of the wise, he was the wisest man in all of history. Okay. Solomon understood music. He understood botany and science and all these different fields of study. He understood, you know, how to put together the teamwork and the, the necessary crews to pull off massive building projects. He understood trade and economy and import, export. Solomon understood all these things. But as he's praying, there's this, there's this disconnect happening where all of a sudden, you know, as we're praying, we're very aware of my ability and their inability. And, and, and I can say that with a little bit of confidence because we get a chance to see a couple other people in the Bible offer prayers. Um, so turn over, if you would, to Nehemiah chapter 1, verse 6. And it's page 388 in my Bible, if that helps you find it. Um, so Nehemiah, this is after the nation of Judah has been taken captive. And he's serving uh, the Persian king, and he gets news from somebody who's in Jerusalem. And he says, hey, how's the city? And they say, it's awful, right? The gates are burned with fire. The walls are torn down. Everything is a disaster. And uh, chapter 1, starting in verse 4, uh, yeah, starting in verse 4, says, when I heard these words, this is Nehemiah talking, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, I beseech you, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who preserves the covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. So Nehemiah starts off, and he's, you know, he's dropping a pretty spiritual prayer too. So it's not, that, it's not that it's bad for prayers to be long. It's not that it's bad for prayers to be eloquent. But watch where Nehemiah goes with this. And he says, Let your ear now be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant, which I am praying before you now, day and night, on behalf of the sons of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the sons of Israel, which we have sinned against you. I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, nor the statutes, nor the ordinances, which you commanded your servant Moses. So Nehemiah says, God, you are God. You're great. You're awesome. You're powerful. And we have no ground to stand before you right now. Right? We are asking for forgiveness on the basis of nothing that we've done, but only on the basis of your goodness. Right? So that's Nehemiah's prayer. And the Lord does a thing in Nehemiah's life. The Lord does an amazing work through Nehemiah. And 
as we get to watch the character of Nehemiah play out, Nehemiah is a guy who, who doesn't ever, he doesn't try and put a separation, right? Nehemiah's constant prayer through the book is, remember me, O God, I pray for good. He says, God, I want to be remembered for good, all right? But in the process, he's constantly aware of his own sin, all right? So that's Nehemiah's prayer. Daniel, chapter 9, Daniel has a very similar prayer. And we're going to jump around it just a little bit. But in chapter 9, he starts praying and kind of the same thing. He says, uh, verse 4, I prayed to the Lord my God and confessed and said, Alas, O Lord, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant and loving kindness for those who love him and keep his commandments. Verse 5, we have sinned, committed iniquity, and acted wickedly and rebelled, even turning aside from your commandments and ordinances. Verse 6, moreover, we have not listened. Verse 7, righteousness belongs to you, O Lord, but to us, open shame. Verse 8, open shame belongs to us. We have sinned against you. Verse 9, we have rebelled against him. Verse 11, for we have sinned against him. 14, for the Lord our God is righteous with respect to all his deeds which he has done, but we have not obeyed his voice. And now, O Lord, uh, verse 15, we have sinned. We have been wicked. For, and then down in verse 18, He says, for we are not presenting our supplications before you on account of any merits of our own, but on account of your great compassion, right? So Daniel, as he's praying, he's not saying, hey, God, you know, I set up this thing for you that entitles me to a certain level of, of, uh, you know, spiritual accomplishment. And when all these other losers pray, please help them out too, right? Daniel, Nehemiah, these guys who we can hold up as, as really, truly pillars of faithful, faithful followers of the Lord, okay? When they pray, they pray for our sins, right? They're not praying for their sins. They're not saying God help them out. They're saying God help us out. And there's this, as you watch this, all right, there's, almost, there's this breakdown happening in Solomon's life where he can start to split off all of a sudden who needs God and who doesn't. And he can start to separate in his mind, well, he can compartmentalize God, right? Because he did his time. He did his thing for the Lord. He built the temple for crying out loud, right? But what did the Lord say at the beginning? Before the temple was done, the Lord said, hey, that temple, that's great. But <clears throat> I care about your heart. I care about your obedience. And in case Solomon missed it, the Lord comes back to him again in chapter 9, 1 Kings 9. The Lord's talking to him again. He says, As for, he says, I've heard your prayer in verse 3. And, you know, I've heard about the temple. And sure, great, I'll dwell in the temple. But verse 4, As for you, if you will walk before me as your father David walked, in integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you, and will keep my statutes and my ordinances, then I will establish the throne of your kingdom over Israel forever. So, Before the temple is completed and after the temple is completed, the Lord says, hey, Solomon, my focus in your life is your obedience, your faithfulness, your commitment to me personally. But as Solomon prays, Solomon says, hey, God, my focus in my relationship with you is my accomplishments, my big picture thing, the the temple that I've built right? That I have built, the temple that I've created for your ark to dwell. All these things. Solomon is, he's, he's breaking down, right? The Lord, and, it, and it's not for lack of understanding, right? Here's the thing. The Lord gives him this message before and after, but Solomon is compartmentalizing his life and trying to 
trying to allow big picture things to cover for a lack of small picture details, right? And so in our lives today, that is just, it's an incredible temptation, all right? It's super easy, super tempting uh, to put on the spiritual, the spiritual jive, right? We do our Christian thing. We even call it that sometimes. We call it our, our Christian thing. Or, you know, we do our thing that's big in the church industry. And we have these, we, we, we think in these big brushstroke terms. But the Lord is interested in what really matters, right? Like Jesus would tell the Pharisees, he says, you know, you guys are, you're like obeying the law and all these super specific details, right? You're tithing your mint and you're tithing your garlic and you're coming and all your little herbs that you get out of your garden. But you should have focused on justice and mercy and truth. Like that would have been a good starting point, right? And here's the, and here's the challenge too. You know, we talked about last week um, when David said, I'm not going to offer to the Lord that which costs me nothing. And I said, the challenge is, I cannot tell you what should cost you something in your relationship with the Lord. And you cannot tell me what should cost me something in, our, in my relationship with the Lord. Because cost and sacrifice in our relationship with the Lord is a personal thing, right? Well, in the same way, here's the challenge for each one of us, is maybe not quite as dramatic as that example last week, all right? But I can't stand up here and say, these actions are big picture things, and these actions are little picture things. Now, there are biblical concepts that I can say are very real and very true, okay? Um, integrity should be present. Your integrity in public should be present, right? You shouldn't be lying in public, okay? That, that's a big picture thing. But your integrity in private should be equally as valid, equally as important, right? More important even. I like I can't, I'm trying to remember if I said this last week or not. I don't remember. But um, Paul Beloche is a, he's a Christian songwriter. And I heard him once at a conference. He said, our, our public worship right, at church should be an overflow of what's happening in our hearts privately. Right? And so often, you know, just, and that's just in a worship context, right? So often, we do it completely backwards. We come to church to worship, sing a couple songs, and then feel good about ourselves to make up for what we didn't do. When really, worship should be, you know what? I've been worshiping the Lord all week. I've been worshiping the Lord by reading his word, by praying, by I've just been fellowshipping with the Lord. And I can't wait now to get to church and declare the truth of who God is in a public setting with other brothers and sisters who have been doing the same thing all week long, right? How much more vibrant is worship when it's doing that, when it's coming as the overflow of what's happening privately into the public sector, right? So if, you know, if that's true of worship, that's true of really everything else, right? Our heart for people publicly should be an overflow of what's happening in our heart for people privately, right? If we're going to be all, you know, super generous, extrovert, you know, how's it going kind of a guy in public, then in private, we had better be concerned about individuals, right? If we're going to pray, you know, like Solomon, is it wrong to pray fancy prayers? Probably not, you know? I mean, but Jesus said, when you pray, don't pray to be seen by men. He said, when you pray, if you want to pray effectively, go in your closet, close the door, and talk to God, 
right? It's okay to pray out loud in a public setting, but prayer publicly should be the overflow of private prayer, right? And so as we're looking at our lives, the question is, what are the things that should be happening privately that should then overflow publicly instead of what are the things that we're doing publicly that are covering up for an absence of privately, right? Like, I mean, you know, especially in our culture, in America, what do you say when you, when you see somebody you haven't seen for a while? How's it going? None of us actually mean it. We don't mean how's it going. We mean I'm saying hello and you're going to say good or busy because that's what we say in America, right? We're busy and good. How's it going? Good. How you been? Busy, right? I'm not asking you to tell me your emotional burdens because I, you know, we say it as we're walking past each other, right? We don't even break stride, right? It's how you going? How's it, how's it going, right? And, and you're behind me by the time you answer. I'm not asking you how it's going. I'm just saying, hey, right? But if we want to, you know, if we want to, come to church, if we want to see the church do something publicly, and we want to say, you know, wow, it'd be great if, if people, if more people came to church, that'd be great, right? We'd love to see more people come to church. I'd love to see more people come to this church. But what I'd really love to see is more people get grounded in the word in this church, right? I'd like to, I think it'd be fantastic if this church grew numerically, but what I'd really like is for this church to grow in depth, I'd like this church to be full of people who just love the word of God. I'd like this church to be full of people who are just excited about what the word has to say, who are excited about standing up for the truth, right? Because they've seen the truth speak to their own lives. They've seen the truth change them. And now they want that to overflow publicly, right? So there's this, so we can, we can cover for all these things on an earthly standpoint by working in big brushstrokes. Right? We, can, we, can, you know, we can give money instead of giving time. We can show up for you know, Sundays and Wednesdays. Right? We can get like bonus credit. We can do all these things that, that justify us either in our own mind or in the eyes of the, the world or even in the eyes of the church. But remember, before the temple was built and after the temple was built, God's message to Solomon was, I care about you. I care about you personally as an individual. And so for each one of us tonight, okay, ask yourself if there's things you should be doing. That's great. You know, ask yourself if there's things that need to change privately. Ask yourself if there's maybe things that should change publicly, right? Um, the Lord doesn't say building the temple's bad, right? Maybe there are some things you should be doing publicly, but they can't be covering up for things privately. And so for each one of us, I think the Lord would say to us the same thing he said to Solomon, which is, you know what? These public things are great. If you want to do something publicly for me, that's great. If you want to come to church, fantastic. The Lord encourages it. If you want to pray in public, fantastic. The Lord encourages that in specific context. Okay? If you want to do these things, that's great. But the Lord would say to each one of us right now, I care about you. I care about having a relationship with you. Right? The Lord is interested in being vested in our lives. Right? Because the Lord loves each one of us so much. Right? I think the Lord loved Solomon so much that he said, a guy this smart, a guy this wise could really blow it if he's not careful. And so I'm going to give him warning before his big accomplishment, and I'm going to give him a, a really clear warning right after. 
right? The Lord gave Solomon the warning and Solomon did not take it. Solomon is, is really, he's one of the tragedies of the Old Testament. But the beautiful thing about the word of God is those warnings are still there for us, right? So the Lord is still giving those warnings to us. And now we have the option to decide what we're going to do with it. Are we going to be a Solomon? Are we going to try and compartmentalize God into pockets of our life? Are we going to be a Daniel instead, right? Are we going to say, God, we are not here on the basis of our merit or the basis of anything we've done. We're here because you're a compassionate God, right? Are we going to go like the book of Ephesians, right? The book of Ephesians is all about God's goodness in the first half and our response in the second half. Are we going to say, God, we are responding not because of our righteousness and we're trying to prove something. We're responding just because you're good. And that's all we can stand on. That's all we can, that's all anybody can do with anything, right? All we can do is say Ephesians 2, and you he made alive who were dead in your trespasses and sins. So now that I'm alive, I'd like to move because that's what, you know, that's what living bodies do. They move. So I want to move for the glory of God, okay? But it's not, I'm not moving for the glory of God to be made alive. I'm moving because I've been made alive, right? For each one of us, and that's the question of, that we have to ask in our own hearts. I cannot tell you how you should respond to God. I can, I can tell you, you know, this, the basic level stuff. Right? I can tell you what the Bible says about how a life of holiness should look and how you should be pursuing righteousness, okay? But, but the Lord is interested in a personal relationship with each one of us. And the Lord wants for each one of us to learn that lesson from Solomon, to then be able to say, okay, God, I do not want my focus to be the big picture things, right? I want my focus to be the, the personal, private things. I want, to, I want to be personal with you, right? I don't want to just put on, you know, I don't want to, you know, everybody talks about putting it on Sunday morning, taking it off Sunday afternoon or whatever. And that's a little bit of an old expression, but it's really, it's accurate. And it's stuck around because it's accurate. I don't want to put something on and then take something off. I want to let you put the righteousness of Christ on me. Right? And I want that to then transform everything I do. And I want to walk in that. I want to respond to that. And so each one of us, in the privacy of our own hearts, is going to have to ask the Lord that. And the Lord will answer that. Right? The Lord absolutely will answer Anybody who's asking that. The Lord will give you the clarity to know if there's things that need to change. And you might just say, you're doing great. Keep plugging away. Keep serving me. Keep following me. Right? He might just say, keep abiding. He might give you some serious correction. Right? But in each one of our lives, we'll have the opportunity to transition from that Solomon mindset of trying to compartmentalize God to that Daniel mindset. Right? To that, you know, I, I love... In Jeremiah, just the last, last verse for the night. Jeremiah chapter 9, verse 24. And I say I love this verse. I went totally blank on this verse before church started, so I had to ask Dad where it was at. But in chapter 9, well, starting in verse 23, it says, Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, and let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. 
that I am the Lord who exercises loving kindness, justiceness, and righteousness on earth, for I delight in these things, declares the Lord. Right? That's, that's what the Lord delights in. That's what the Lord loves. The Lord's fine with big picture stuff. Right? If you want to do big picture stuff, the Lord's fine with that. He'll take that. Right? He told Solomon, I'll, I'll dwell in the temple. Sure. But what does he delight in? Loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. So each one of us gets the privilege of opening up the word and saying, okay, God, I want to walk in that. I want to walk in loving kindness, justice, and righteousness. I want to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with you. I want to love others just like you loved me. Let's go. Right? And that is what the abundant Christian life looks like. So God, we just thank you for your word. And just, uh, God, even though it's a tragedy to watch Solomon's life play out like that, we thank you for that warning that we can learn from. And Lord, I do pray that you would just help each of us. God, um, help us to be aware of our sin. Um, like Daniel and Nehemiah said, God, we, we, want to, uh, we want to not compartmentalize. We want to really be open to your Holy Spirit speaking and moving in our lives and in our hearts. God, we want to respond to you. We want to be changed by you. We want to see your word impact our lives on a private, personal level so that it can then ripple out. So God, I pray that you would just do that work in each one of our hearts, in my heart. God, I pray that you would fill us all up, that you would empower us, that you would embolden us. I pray that we would just be people who walk victoriously in Christ. I pray that we would be just constantly being transformed and renewed by the power of your word, by the power of your love, by the power of your Holy Spirit. So have your way with us, God. Just bless us as we're going out. Please, um, please use our lives for your glory. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.